0: Let's take our Bibles this evening and let's turn back over to Luke 18 just for a moment. Then we're going to go to Romans chapter number 5. Luke chapter number 18 uh, for the uh, follow-up of this morning's service. And then we'll be uh, jumping over to Romans chapter 5. For those of you who were not in the auditorium this morning, uh, we looked at a prayer a, a parable on prayer that Jesus Christ gave to uh, the people gathered there uh, listening to his uh, teaching on the second coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming to establish the kingdom. And uh, we looked at what Jesus had to say about his second coming, about the establishing of his kingdom. Uh, and uh, that that doesn't paint a real pretty picture for those on earth that are under the judgment of God of the tribulation period, and His teaching ended with uh, I- with innumerable corpses and their their bodies being eaten by the scavenger birds as their bones were being picked, and Jesus ended chapter seventeen with that graphic image uh, on the people's minds of the horrible judgment and persecution. Of the tribulation period that would culminate in the second coming at the, uh, uh, of Jesus Christ back to earth to establish his kingdom. He opened up chapter 18, same crowd of people, and and so with that, with that, uh, context of the teaching on the second coming, he had two parables about prayer that uh, he spoke of. One was directed at the Christians who find themselves in persecution and difficult times. And he encouraged Christian people to always pray during difficult, hard times rather than fainting, quitting, giving up, throwing in the towel. When the going gets uh, really tough, we need to pray uh, lest we faint not. He gave the parable and applied it to the Christians facing difficult times. And he ended that teaching on prayer with a statement that when the Son of Man comes back to earth, will he find any faith? Will there be anyone still faithful, still trusting God, still anticipating the second coming, still looking forward to God coming back to earth? Will he find anyone that hasn't quit, that hasn't fainted, that hasn't thrown in the towel and given up? And so with that thought, he then gave a second parable, a parable that was directed toward how people get into his family So that they can be people of faith when Jesus Christ comes back. And so he told a parable of a Pharisee and a publican. Two individuals who both went up onto the temple platform. And both went there for the purpose of prayer. But they were very different. And the Pharisee was the best that religion could produce. They were the constant enemies of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. He often spoke against religion and the self-righteous religiosity of people who think they can earn their way into the favor of God. The Pharisee, who went onto the platform of the temple, and he began to pray, but he didn't. He addressed God, but he didn't really talk to God. He just talked about how great he was as a, as a religious man. And he was thankful that he wasn't the way sinful people are. And that he lived a religious life. And he was so filled with his own pomp, with his own uh, self-image uh, of the greatness of who he was. And uh, and then Jesus said there was another man, a Pharisee. I'm sorry, a publican. Uh, just a scoundrel, a thief, a person who had bottomed out in his life. And he wouldn't even come over on the main part of the temple platform. He was off afar off on the side of the temple platform. And, and his prayer was much shorter. And his prayer was not directed to what a great guy he was. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up toward heaven. He smote his breast with his fists in, in great emotion and, and just in a deplorable state. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus Christ drew the moral of the story that the religious man, the Pharisee, the person who had all that religion could offer and thought that he was good because of all the things he did and didn't do, that that man did not get saved. But the man who had a brokenness, he was at the bottom in his life, he had no self-worth or self-image of goodness, Jesus Christ said that man went away justified that day. He went home saved that day. And Jesus Christ left us this amazing story of two men, two prayers, and those prayers opened up their hearts and revealed who they were as individuals. And so the publican, was genuinely converted. And we see the path into a relationship with God that comes from the brokenness of a person's life when they finally hit rock bottom and they stop talking about how good they are and they have nothing to offer God. And all they can do is fall at the feet of the cross and say, oh God, would you be merciful to me? A sinner. Well, that's where life begins. Life begins at the foot of the cross. And verse number number 14, Jesus Christ said, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. I want us to focus on that word justified. What did that man receive that evening? What changed in his life that day? When he came to God, not as a self-professed good man, but when he finally got to the point where he was at the bottom of his life and he says, I am nothing but a godless sinner going to hell. And God justified him. What did he receive at that moment? I was thinking about that as I was, I was, I was meditating on this parable that Jesus Christ told my mind quickly jumped over to Romans chapter number five. So jump over to Romans five with me and I want you to see uh, three amazing words that speak to us of what it is that we got the moment we got to the end of ourselves and bottomed out in life and said, God, I need you. At that moment, at the bottom of our self-worth, when we turn to God for salvation, we receive from God some amazing blessings. I want you to see it. In Romans chapter 5, of course, you know Romans is the great theological discourse of New Testament Christianity. From front to end, it is an amazing uh, uh, presentation of the theology of the New Testament. God... Use the Apostle Paul to record this. He's been, been coming at this whole thing of salvation. Chapter 1 paints the whole world in a really bad mess and all of us in a really bad mess. Chapter 3 uh, just kind of zeroes in on our guilt and says that God gave us the Ten Commandments, not with the vain hope that anyone could ever keep them and end up being good and go to heaven. But rather, he gave us the Ten Commandments that we could read them and every mouth may may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And therefore, the conclusion is there's none that doeth good, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Romans 3, that great guilt chapter that brings us to the bottom of our game and we realize we are hopeless and helpless before a holy God. Chapter 5 has a therefore in it. Chapter five, verse one, therefore being justified by faith, not works, not working our way into the favor of God. But when we come to the point when we know that we are absolutely helpless and hopeless and we turn to God and by faith believe that Jesus died for me, he paid the debt for my sin, he died on the cross in my place, he died for me and we call out. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And by faith, believe that Jesus Christ loves us and wants to save us. At that moment, being justified by faith, we have. What do we have? What are we offering the people who live in Northern Virginia? I was reading an article uh, written by an individual who, was, who dealt with a lot of uh, people, suicidal, uh, uh, mental health, depression. Uh, just bottomed out discouragement and depression and life is over and, and no hope. And, and a ministry of dealing with things like that and people uh, were struggling with deep depression and deep uh, discouraging life situations. And and the individual, the, this Christian worker, said that the average church ought to look more like a psych hospital than anything else. We're here to offer to people that are suicidal What Jesus will give them when they get to the end of the rope. We're here to offer to the person in deep depression. Someone whose life is spun out of control. Someone who's struggling to get off addictions. We're here to offer them. That when you get to the bottom. And when it all crashes down around you. Jesus has something to offer you. And what Jesus has to offer you, you'll never get anywhere outside of Jesus Christ. What is it that we are offering Northern Virginia when we offer them the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is it that a person who gets to the bottom and turns to Jesus Christ, what is it they receive? Well, there are three things they receive. There are three possessions that I possess today because I got saved. Over 50 years ago. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have, what's the word? Peace. We have peace. And not only do we have peace, verse number two, by whom also we have access. We have access. And not only peace, and not only access, but we have access by faith in his grace wherein we stand and. What's the third thing we have? We have joy. Here are the three possessions I possess. I've got peace. I've got access. And I've got joy. Boy, don't you realize that that's what the person addicted to drugs wants and can't get at the end of a needle. That's what the person up in the middle of the night at a computer screen addicted to pornography. That's what they want, but they'll never find it on an internet screen. That's what the person that, that thinks that at the bottom of that bottle, he'll, he'll it, be able to get rid of his problems. Should be able to get beyond all the depression and discouragement and heartache. They're at the end of the rope, they're at the bottom of the barrel, and they can finally avoid their problems of life and the discouragements and the depression by just one more six-pack, just one more bottle, just one more needle. And they never find peace, access to God, and joy. But the Bible says that when you've been justified, these are the possessions of a justified person. And so that publican, with his distraught time of life at the bottom of it all, beating his chest with his fists in great turmoil of soul, knowing the wickedness of the life that he'd lived, knowing the, the horrible decisions he'd made, knowing the, uh, the awfulness of, of how he'd lived his life, and, and he doesn't have anything to offer God. He can't even look up. But he knows he's in desperation And he needs God. And just like that, he's justified by faith. And he has peace. He has access to God. And he has joy in his life. This is what we offer people when we offer them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at it just a little bit more. We have peace in verse number one, by whom we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, 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 there are other places in the Bible where this is just, the the reality of this is just multiplied. I offered uh, two passages of Scripture, one in Colossians and one in Ephesians, both of which emphasize peace as the possession that comes as a result of salvation. God brings peace into our lives. We have peace with God. First of all, peace with God. We have peace with God, Romans 5, 1 says. You you know the difference between the peace of God and peace with God. You'll never have the peace of God until you are at peace with God. And when we get saved, we we put down the implements of warfare. And we have peace. Someone once said, uh, Lloyd Corey once said, peace is the brief, glorious moment in history when everybody stands around reloading. And and that may be true in this world, but it's not true in our relationship with God. Peace with God is an enduring reality that we possess where we're no longer the enemies of God. Uh, The the passage of Scripture there in Colossians 1 will not... uh, turn to it and study it tonight but that passage of scripture just explodes with meaning as to the peace with god that we receive in christ we're aliens we're enemies by wicked works and by minds that are pitted against god we are the enemies of god See, that's what the self-righteous person has not come to understand they missed that when they read the bible That they're sinners who are enemies of God because of the way they think and because of the way they live. They're enemies in their mind and in the works that they carry out as a result of their mind. They are the enemies of God. But in salvation, they're no longer enemies. They have peace with God. Colossians 1, Ephesians 4 both deal with the amazing peace we've got. The necessity, because we're enemies. The possibility, because Christ shed His blood on Calvary. The purpose, that we might become holy people and become like God. And the condition is our life lived in obedience to the instructions that God gives us in His Word. All of that in the passage there in Colossians, talking about the peace we have with God. But you know, it's not only peace with God. Because of the peace we have with God, it is also possible that we can be made at peace with man. Ephesians chapter number two is an amazing passage of scripture, particularly in light of racial overtones. With regards to racism or one ethnic group who doesn't like another ethnic group because their ethnicity is different. And in Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible talks about the Jew and the Gentile. And the Jews hated the Gentiles. And the Gentiles had no use for the Jews. And if you happened to be a half-breed, which the Samaritans were, the half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile, you were hated by both groups. The racism of the first century was deeply embedded in life in Israel. And there was an animosity one against the other. And the thought that a Jew and a Gentile could both get saved and sit down in the same church and have fellowship together and enjoy one another's company and not hate the other person because of their ethnic background, that was unheard of. And so Ephesians... Chapter number two talks about what I was as a Gentile outsider who was an alien and a stranger from God. But then I got saved. And what God made me through salvation is the Jew and the Gentile in the same body, in the same church body, sitting at the same table, enjoying fellowship one with another. Not, not a church for every ethnicity, not a church over here for the Chinese and a church over here for the Hispanics and a church over here for, for the Africans and a church over here. No. No. The miracle of salvation takes people of, of a variety of ethnic backgrounds and puts them in the same body. And they sit at the same table. And they enjoy the same fellowship. They are one in Christ. We have peace with man because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just... Uh, I just read an interesting book, um, Betty Smith's son and daughter-in-law, when we visited Betty Smith about getting baptized and joining the church. Their son and daughter-in-law gave Betty and I a book that was written by, co-authored by two individual men. One was an African-American and one was a Caucasian-American. And, uh, and their, their stories became intertwined as they learned about each other as Christian men. And it turns out that the, the forefathers of the Caucasian American man had owned the forefathers of the black American man. One family had owned the other family. And because one of those individuals in the black American family, because one of those persons had, had not told the, the uh, owner... That he was going to go somewhere or, or something trivial, but they used him as an as a as a uh, an example, and they tied him up and they beat him to death. He died that night. They literally beat him to death for virtually nothing to make an object lesson of him, so the other slaves would do what they're told. And here these two men are, and they begin to study their history, and they found out that they're. History's crossed. And the names, and the places, and the people. And they found out that one of them had owned the other. Back in history. And they became best friends in Christ. And they go around preaching. One of them, the, the, the uh, the African American, uh, man has a, has a pot, a cast iron kettle. And, and his family used to take that cast iron kettle. They weren't allowed to read. They weren't allowed to learn how to read. They weren't allowed to pray. They weren't allowed to have prayer meetings. They weren't allowed to do anything that might move them towards God. Because God's a God of freedom and liberty. And, and, and the Old Testament revolves around the story of one nation being made free from Egypt. Then becoming the nation of Israel. And, and so uh, the the... Uh, Some of the slave owners didn't want the slaves to be able to read the Bible. didn't want them to be able to know the history of Christianity because it might cause them to want to be free themselves. And so they they could never be caught praying. And yet they longed for God to be at work in their lives. And so they had this kettle. They'd use it to, to wash clothes in. They'd use it for a variety of purposes. But when it came time to pray, they would turn it upside down. And they would lift it up off the ground and put it on blocks. And they would get around that kettle. And they would get down on their knees. And they would pray their prayers up into that kettle. To muffle the sounds. So that the owner, if he happened to walk by, would never hear that his slaves were praying. And that kettle had been passed down through the family generation after generation. And this preacher has this kettle. And he... And the white preacher traveled across America with his kettle, preaching about oneness in Christ, preaching about how that in Christ, we're not only made at peace with God, we're made at peace with man. There's only one race, the human race. There's only one savior. He shed his blood for for everybody in the human race and in Christianity. There's, there's no divisions. There's no ethnic backgrounds. There's, we are one people in Christ. We are at peace with one another because of the blood of Jesus Christ that saved us from our sin. Oh, the message that, that needs to be shouted across America is the peace with God that brings us peace with man and enables us and allows us to enjoy the privilege of being one in Christ. And it doesn't matter what color of the skin, the slant of the eye, the part of the world that one's family came from. The ethnic jokes, the hatred, the sneers, the I'm better than you because of who I am and who you are, all done away when Jesus Christ justifies us and we're made one in Christ. I have peace with God. I have peace with man. That's the great possession of justification that we enjoy. But then, we also, verse number 2, Romans 5 verse 2 says, we also have access. I've got access to the creator of the universe. I I can talk to the one who created everything. I've got access into the presence of eternal God. That's Religion can never give me that. No, the religious crowd says, you've got to come to our priest. You've got to come here and confess your sin here. And you've got to come and talk to this person. This church will give you access to God. Come, get baptized at our church and you can have access to God. Come, and and, and we will be the mediator between you and God. The self-righteous church religionist will never have access with God directly because of their theology that they... Mandate upon the people. But when one gets saved, we have access. Can you imagine access to God? You know, there's a lot of people who like to have access to certain human beings that are really important. To be able to have access to somebody of great human importance, politically or economically or in some arena of life. Someone that, that is, uh, everyone knows this person's name and they're phenomenal and And to have access to that person, to be able to walk up and get in place in that person's presence to talk to them. You're talking about a dream come true. Access. And we have that in Christ. From the day of our salvation, we have access into the very presence of the eternal God. Access by faith into his grace wherein we stand. Access to God. Let me get you to, to uh, just jump over there to uh, Hebrews chapter number four, and and I just don't you just love the statements in the book of Hebrews about access to God? Uh, the book of Hebrews was written because some people were had embraced Christ but were tempted to go back to the law and Judaism, and Hebrews was written to show people that you that, that it's better in Christ than what it was in Judaism. And so this access to God that the tabernacle and the temple and the book of Leviticus and all this stuff about gaining access to God through the religion of Judaism was all a type and a picture for them to understand that they could have access to God when God rent the veil and opened up access into his very presence in Hebrews chapter number four. In verse number 14, the Bible says, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go over to chapter 10. And verse number 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 10 tells us by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then in verse number 17 of the same chapter and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more now where remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. Without wavering. We have access. Oh, sometimes I take that too much for granted. Do you? That you can pray anytime, anywhere. You ever take that for granted? Fail to take advantage of the access we have in the very presence of the Creator of all that is. We have access. And then there's one last possession that we have. Because of my justification. Because I came to the bottom in my life. I came to the end of my life, and, and, I, and at the end, at the bottom, with nothing to offer God, all I could do was cry out, "Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and God justified me. I immediately had peace with God, peace with man, access into the presence of God. And verse number two says, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. And verse number 11, and not only so, but we also joy in in God, Great passage here from verses 1 to 11, focusing here in the main part of the passage on the joy we have because of our justification. We have joy. We rejoice. We glory. We're excited. We have such optimism in our God. Now, what does this mean? What, what do we have? We have joyous optimism in verse number two. We rejoice in hope. We live with hope. We live with the confidence, the optimism we know what the last book of the chapter the last chapter of the book says we we know where it all ends and so we have great confidence we have great hope we have great optimism uh, that 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 it all ends well and in eternity we will be in the presence of our god sitting around his table enjoying his fellowship forever we rejoice in hope of what lies in front of us oh it's a it's a joyous optimism but but life on earth isn't always easy. And so our joy is not only for what's going to come later. Our joy is our experience during the trials and tribulations of life. Verse number three, not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. Here's this James 1, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptation. Because I'm justified in Christ, I have joy in my problems How is it that anyone that is still sane can be joyous in tribulation? There's only one way. James reveals it in James 1. It's revealed here in Romans 5. The only possible way is the next word in the middle of verse number 3, knowing. I know. That the trial I'm going through, the tribulation I'm suffering through, the bad things that I'm enduring, I know it's going to produce something good. I may not understand what that good is. I can't see that good. But I believe in my heart of hearts that when I go through tribulation or trial or difficulty or hardship, I know that tribulation work is patience. Patience works experience. Experience works hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. I know God has this thing. And I know in the midst of my worst tribulation that something good is going to come out of this. and Therefore, I have joy in the midst of my troubling times. Joyous trouble in my life. I had the opportunity this morning to teach the third of three lessons to the MMs class. They're studying through 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book of stability in an unstable world. And the focus the last three works, uh, weeks has been to live a, a beautiful life as a Christian person, regardless of the circumstances. And it zeroed in this morning on. Unfair treatment when we suffer for righteousness' sake. And that's what this is talking about. Our ability to have joy, no matter what the trouble is. I shared with them and read a little reading excerpt from the life of Obadiah Holmes. That room is named after him. Obadiah Holmes' room. And John Clark, that room is named for John Clark. And those two individuals, along with Mr. Crandall, back in the 1650s in New England, left Rhode Island and went up to Boston, Massachusetts for the purpose of helping an elderly man. And while they were there, they had the audacity to have a prayer meeting and to read and preach from the word of God in the private residence of that old man in Boston that they went there to try to be a comfort to. And the authorities found out in Puritan, New England, that some Baptists had the audacity to have a church service in Puritan, New England, where it's against the law to be a Baptist in the 1600s. They were arrested. Obadiah Holmes was taken to Boston Square. There on Boston Square in 1651, Obadiah Holmes was tied to a whipping post. He was beaten until the blood overflowed his boots. He was beaten so severely that the the, the records, the historical records record that for weeks he could not lie down to rest. He couldn't let any part of his body touch a bed. He had to sleep on his knees and his elbows. And so on his knees and on his elbows, he could find some rest at night. For weeks, horrible treatment, unfair treatment, trouble in his life. And yet, they said that as they beat him until the blood flowed out of his boots, he preached the gospel to the people that were gathered around, watching him being beaten on Boston Square. And when they were all finished, he looked at the people that beat him, and they said, you have you have whipped me as with roses. He had great joy in the midst of great trouble. You say, could anything good come out of that? Oh, yeah. History records people got saved that day because of the testimony of Obadiah Holmes on Boston Square. But even more far-reaching than that, there was a man that was watching that. Knowing that in Puritan, New England, where you had to baptize your infant into the state church under threat of persecution. He watched what they did to Obadiah Holmes and he went back. He was the president of Cambridge College, which later was renamed as Harvard University. Maybe you've heard of this school. He was the president of Harvard in Puritan, New England. When he watched what they did to Obadiah Holmes, when he listened to the testimonies of Obadiah Holmes and of uh, John Clark and of Mr. Crandall, he he went home and he got his Bible out and and he said, what would make these men suffer such atrocity for some belief about baptism? And as he poured over the scriptures, he became convinced that they were right and that to baptize infants is not found anywhere in the Bible. And to demand that you baptize your infant under threat of law is a crime against conscience. And he preached a series of messages at Harvard University, denouncing his belief in infant baptism and Protestant theology. He got fired from Harvard. And he had a newborn baby at home. And he refused to allow his newborn child to be Baptized. And what came out of that in the 1600s in Boston, Massachusetts, in Puritan, New England, eventually produced our Bill of Rights and our religious liberty across the great land of America, that your conscience toward God cannot be infringed upon by any political party or any government institution, that we have liberty. Endowed by our Creator to worship Him as we understand is right to worship Him. All coming from a man beaten senseless on Boston Square for the audacity of his beliefs. And he took the punishment with joy. Because joy in trouble is a part of the possession Of Christian people who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We have joy. Joyous optimism. Joyous trouble. And the whole passage ends in verse 11 and says not only that, but we have joy in our God. This amazing relationship we have with our Creator is filled with joy. Talk about your God. Talk about your Jesus And you're filled with joy for what God has done for you and what Jesus has done for you. Joy is one of the possessions of Christian people. We joy in our hope of heaven. We joy in the trouble of our lives, knowing good will come out of this unfair treatment. And we joy in the relationship we have with our dad. And every day we talk to him. Hey, dad. Way up there in heaven. You're you're known as El Bethel. You're the God of the house of God. Hallowed be thy name. Dad, we're looking forward to Jesus coming back and establishing his kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dad, I got a bill I need to pay. Kids need some food to eat. Dad, would you give us this day our daily bread? And by the way, Dad, <laughs> I shouldn't have lost my temper there on 95, trying to get out of town with a million other people in the parking lot called 95. I shouldn't have lost my temper. Dad, would you forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us? And oh, yeah, Dad, one more thing. I got some kids and grandkids growing up in this messed up world. Dad, would you protect us from evil? Would you deliver us from evil? We talk to him every day, don't we? We talk to our dad in heaven. And we joy in the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. These are the possessions of those who have been justified by faith. This is what the publican got when he was born again that day on the temple platform. When he dropped his eyes to his feet and beat on his chest and said, Oh God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. We offer that to Northern Virginia. We give out tracts. We try to get the gospel into people's hands because religious people earning their way to heaven will rudely be awakened by the flames of hell one day. And their only hope is if we reach them with the gospel that brings peace and access and joy to life.